Welcome everyone to The Great Sources, Season 3, Episode 19. This is our second shear about the Mernavuchim, the Guide of the Perplexed. Before I launch into the shear, I want to remind everyone, if you haven't taken a look yet, take a look at my new essay series. There's a link in the description of this episode. I'm doing something very interesting, which is I'm trying to explain fundamental Torah ideas in plain language that's accessible to everyone, even without any background. And even many of you who have certainly a deep, rich background in Torah learning will gain a lot from seeing how Torah ideas can be presented in simple language accessible to all, and it will sharpen the very ideas and bring home to you what the depths of the Torah really are. So take a look, highly recommend it. Now, as you mentioned in the last lecture, unlike the others from we went through, the guide of the perplexed, the Mernavuchim, does not lend itself to that kind of treatment where we'll review the whole book. It's an esoteric book. It's written in a very mysterious way where you have to put the pieces together and you have to notice allusions and notice words. And it's such a, a wonderful and amazing rich and vast book that would be impossible to, to even to even review in a cursory way in a few lectures. So instead of doing what we did with the other books, we are going to pick a few topics. Last time we spoke about whether the guide was written with divine inspiration. And what I'm going to do this time is pick another topic, pick one idea that appears in various places in the guide. By studying this, we'll get clarity in a very important concept, something that's very important to the Rambam and in the Rambam's way of thinking. But additionally, this study will show us how the guide has to be read, show us how the guide has to be arranged and put together, specifically what we spoke about in the last lecture about the Rambam's um, the Rambam's warning that if you want to understand the guide, you have to combine its chapters and put its chapters together. So we're going to be doing that today. We're going to be doing that about a very specific topic. And I'm going to show you how that's the way to unlock the mysteries of what the guide means. To begin, I'm going to read from Chelek Aleph Perk Bez. Volume 1, Chapter 2. And um, I provided the links. If you don't have a copy of the Sefer, there are links there to the Hebrew edition, the Kapach translation, in the episode, in the, uh, episode description. In Chilik Aleph, Perg Beis, one of the most fundamental chapters of the guide. And for someone who's not going to be studying the guide from cover to cover, beginning to end. If you want to get a sense of how rich the Mordebuchim is and, and how interesting it is, this chapter definitely would recommend itself. Volume 1, Chapter 2. Here the Ramam talks about what the sin of eating from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, from the Eitz Adas Tevra, what that was all about. And the Rambam presents it in the following way. He says, that years ago, a man asked him a question, a challenge. And the challenge was that it would seem, based on the story in Beratius, that man transgressed the commandment of God, the commandment not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He disobeyed. And the punishment for his disobedience is that he attained intellect. Because after they ate from the tree of knowledge, they, they had knowledge of good and evil, which they did not have before. So how could it be then that a transgression or a disobedience should lead to the greatest perfection of man? And the Ram answers and explains that in fact, eating from the tree of knowledge did not lead to the greatest perfection of man, but it led to his great downfall. And the gist of his answer is, that knowledge of good and evil is not the same thing as intellect. 
In fact, it's not intellect. It's something different than intellect. Intellect works with the categories of true and false. Intellect determines what is true and what is false. <clears throat> the idea of toiv and ra, fine and bad, or good and bad, though that belongs to the category of not what is true and what is false, but what is called in the Rambam's terminology mifur samis, that's a translation from the Arabic, things generally accepted as known, not to those cognized by the intellect. And that means that you don't say about, says the Rambam, you don't say, for example, it is good or it is fine that the heaven is spherical. Or it's bad that the earth is flat. You say it's true or false. It's false that the earth is flat. And it's true that the heaven is spherical. You don't talk about it in those terms of good and evil or fine and bad. The language of truth and falsehood <clears throat> is MS and Sheka, true and false, not Toiv and Ra. Toiv and Ra are these value judgments, fine and evil are value judgments that we attach to those things which are generally accepted to be true. And the most manifestly bad thing based on what's generally accepted is nudity. So that man didn't have this category Man did not apprehend, before eating from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, man did not apprehend the idea of something being bad or something being fine, which means something being generally accepted as appropriate. All he had in terms of his categories of thought was thought, was, was true and false. All he could do was distinguish between truth and falsehood. So that nudity, which is the most basic thing, which... Everyone knows that you don't walk around naked, and that's because everyone knows that you don't walk around naked, and everyone just knows that it's a bad thing to do. That's not something about true and false. That's something about uh, what's called mifrasamis, the generally accepted truths, generally accepted as known. And Adam and Eve didn't have that kind of concept, didn't have that faculty. All they knew was true and false. They didn't know fine and bad. But then when they ate from this tree, then they descended into this kind of thinking, what we call thinking, but maybe the Ramah wouldn't even call it thinking because it's actually not so much about reason as about um, what value you attach to something. They descended into this way of thinking about what is fine and bad and judging things as being correct or incorrect, not based, not based on truth and falsehood, but rather on based on these kinds of labels of fine and bad. And now I want to read this passage. So that's the Rambam's, um, the gist of the Rambam's explanation of the story of eating from the tree of good and evil. And of course, there's so much to think about that in and of itself. But what I want to do is I want to read a passage over here where the Rambam manifestly contradicts himself from one line to the next, but not only contradicts himself, he says something which is a logical impossibility. I'm going to read it to you from the English. Among these generally accepted things, Even that which is most manifestly bad, namely uncovering the genitals, was not bad according to him, and he did not apprehend that it was bad. So this was before they ate from the tree. He didn't apprehend that it was bad. However, when he disobeyed and inclined toward his desires of the imagination and the pleasures of his corporeal senses, inasmuch as it is said, that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, he was punished by being deprived of that intellectual apprehension. So originally man did not have that kind of apprehension of fine and bad. All he knew was true and false. But when he disobeyed, I'm going to read this again, when he disobeyed and inclined toward his desires of the imagination and the pleasure of his corporeal senses, inasmuch as it is said that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, he was punished by being deprived of that intellectual apprehension. He therefore disobeyed the commandment that was imposed upon him on account of his intellect. And becoming endowed with the faculty of apprehending generally accepted things, he became absorbed in judging things to be bad or fine. So you might have noticed the circular logic here. Rabam says that originally, 
before they ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Man did not apprehend that nudity was bad, but when he disobeyed and inclined toward his desires and imagination, he was punished. As the Pasuk says, that they saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes. He was punished by being deprived of that intellectual apprehension and he therefore disobeyed the commandment that was imposed upon him on account of his intellect. And becoming endowed with the faculty of apprehending, generally accepting things, became absorbed in judging things to be bad or fine. So the question is, the Rambam says that the punishment for the transgression was what led to disobeying. He was punished by being deprived of intellectual apprehension. He therefore disobeyed the commandment. Now, the punishment follows the disobedience, disobeying the commandment and taking from this tree, from the fruit of the tree and judging that it's good and eating from it. That is disobeying the commandment. And that's what led to the punishment. And the Rambam says that he was punished by being deprived of intellectual apprehension, which is why he disobeyed. So how can we put the disobedience at the, as the effect of the sin and as the effect of the punishment for the sin? So that is the problem here, which is an impossible, an almost impossible sentence, okay? Someone did a sin and he was punished by losing his intellect and he therefore disobeyed and did the sin. What does that even mean? Now, before we get to the answer, I want to just give you a sense, just so you should understand a little bit of a sense of what the Ramam is doing here. He's saying that before a man ate from the tree of knowledge and good and evil, all he had was reason. All he could know was what is true and what is false. Eating from the tree that gives knowledge of good and evil because it's good. The woman saw that the tree was good. That very seeing that the tree was good that tells you that the woman, Chava, was approaching the universe, everything that was around her, with a paradigm other than the paradigm of what is true and what is false. She looked at the tree and saw that it was good or that it was fine. And that was a reason for her to eat from it. So right there, that looking is already the, the very sin and it's also the very punishment in a certain sense, because as Ramam says, the punishment is by being deprived of that intellectual apprehension. So you see how the sin and the punishment are one and the same thing here, because the sin is not using reason of good and false, but rather using these categories of fine and bad. But, and that's his answer to the person who posed the question. The person asked him, you know, man, man disobeyed and earned his greatest quality of knowledge and good and evil. The Rambam says, no, the greatest quality of a human being is knowing true from false. Approaching the world through the lens of fine and bad or good and evil is in fact a negative, a deficiency in the human being, an imperfection. Where we start caring about what everyone knows instead of caring about what is true. But again, that doesn't answer the question. How could the Ram say, quote, he was punished by being deprived of that intellectual apprehension. He therefore disobeyed the commandment that was imposed on him in account of his intellect and becoming endowed with the faculty of apprehending generally accepted things. He became absorbed in judging things to be bad and fine. How could he have disobeyed on account of the punishment for his disobedience? So this seems like an impossible, something that's impossible to solve. And in fact, at this point in the book, I would suggest that it was impossible to solve. And something that's really fascinating is that, if you remember, I think I mentioned this in the first lecture, this was written, the guide was written to the Ramam's student, to whom he addresses the, the, um, the student Rabbi Yosef, to whom he addresses the first, the letter to the Talmud, which is what the letter to the student is what the guide begins with. And he tells him that, I'll read it instead, this is the last line of the letter. I have set it down in dispersed chapters. All of them that are written down will reach you where you are one after the other. So it's really interesting to think about the fact that the key to the guide is to put all the chapters together, but, together, but 
to um, connect them, find the connections, while the student, the target audience, the first target audience of the guide, the one who to whom it was written, did not receive the chapters all at once. He would receive a chapter and he would left he was left puzzling and he couldn't really understand the guide by the Ram's own admission until he would then in the future receive some follow-up chapters. And each time he would have to put it together. So it's really interesting. I'm not sure what that tells us about how we we could study the guide. But it's interesting to think about the experience of the first reader who was left with questions that he knew could only be answered when it all comes together. So I want to suggest that the key, the key to understanding this almost unsolvable conundrum, how can you say a person sinned and therefore he was punished and because of his punishment he disobeyed? It seems to be impossible. But I want to suggest that the solution lies in volume 2, chapter 30 of the guide. And that chapter is one of the most cryptic chapters. There are three places in the guide where the Rambam talks in a very cryptic way. One of them is volume 2, chapter 30, and that's the that's the chapter where he deals with uh, Masseberatius, creation. But that's where he deals with it inside the text, and it goes through the text of Beratius. The first three prakim, or four prakim, uh, for the first four chapters of Beratius. <laughs> and he speaks in a very cryptic way. The other two places where he speaks in this cryptic kind of language is in the beginning of the third volume. In the first seven chapters of the third volume, the Rambam talks about Masim um, Rekava, the work of the chariot. And here again, he me what I mean to say is he talks about the actual chapters in Yechezkel. And here too, he talks in this very cryptic way. And there he says, I'm going to write, and it's going to seem as if I'm not adding anything, but you have to put it all together. If you're the one who this book is written for, you have to put it all together and, and understand it. And the other place where he writes in this way is in uh, when he talks about the book of Eiv. He also writes in a fairly cryptic way and just points out certain allusions in the text. Um, the book of Eiv figures prominently in the guide, and that is in the third volume, in chapter 22 um, and, 20, and 23. And uh, that's, of course very significant for understanding divine providence. Okay, but that's a, an aside. So we're, we're going to read something from volume 2, chapter 30, where the Rambam gives us the the um, allusions to understand creation. To understand the first four chapters of Veracious. And there the Rambam tells us something about Adam and Eve, man and woman. And he talks about the fact that um, Adam and Eve were created together, having their backs joined, and that this being was divided, and one half of it, namely Eve, was taken and brought up to Adam. So he quotes the Chazal that teach that Adam and Chava were created as one creature, conjoined, and then they were sawed, and then they were divided. And when the Pasuk says that Hashem took one of Tzal Oisov, it means one of Adam's sides, because he had two sides. One was male and one was female. In accordance with this, they say that of his Tzal Oisov means of his sides. Understand, now this is the key sentence, understand in what way it has been explained that they were two in a certain respect and they were also one. As it says, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So the Rambam says, okay, Adam and Eve were created as one composite creature, half male, half female. That teaches you, and then they were cut into two. That teaches you that they were two in a certain respect and they were also one. Now, what does this mean that they were two in a certain respect and they were also one? What, what is this illusion? So, the Mepharshim on the Mernabukim, and this is the classic Mepharshim Shentav, Efoidi, and the Rabbanel. That you will find in the Ibn Tabon, in the classic um, edition of the Mayanabuchim with the Ibn Tabon's translation. They explain that the Rambam understands that 
Adam and Chava, the male and female that we find in in Bereshis, alludes to the idea of form and matter. And that's because the Rambam says in volume 1, chapter 17, the Rambam says, and he actually says this even in his introduction, he says that matter is designated as female and form as the male, and even Plato and his predecessors, who also spoke, spoke in riddles and allusions, because they recognized that these teachings are, are dangerous for the, for the masses. They designated matter as the female and form as the male. And basically the idea is, this is the theory of hylomorphism. Aristotle's idea of hylomorphism really precedes Aristotle, which is that everything is made up of matter and form. And that means that everything has a material of which it's made, but all material is something specific. And whatever specific thing it is, that's its form. And when I say something that all matter is something specific, it doesn't mean it's shaped into a table. Even a piece of speck of dust is material, but it's something, it's a specific form of the material because it's a speck of dust. And it could be something else. It could have a different form. And in fact, it will one day take on a different form because matter always loses one form and, and takes on another form. And this is a very important concept. And it's a very important concept for understanding what the human being is. And that will bring us to what the Ramam is saying in volume 2, chapter 30, when he says it's important to understand that man and woman, male and female, are in a certain sense one and a certain sense two. What that means is we have to understand that the inner meaning, the inner meaning of the narrative about Adam and Eve is a lesson teaching about matter and form. What is called in a parabolically, in a, in a, allegorically, it's called male and female, called Adam and Eve. So when the Torah is teaching us something about Adam and Chava, it's really teaching us something about every single human being who within themselves contains a material aspect and a formal aspect. And that means that you, every single person, is made up of matter, of course, but also has a form. And what does a form mean? A form means, as the Rambam himself defines it in Volume 1, Chapter 1, form means the virtue in which a thing becomes what it is. It is a true reality of the thing. What makes this what it is? That's its form. So if you have a table, you say, well, there's a form of a table. And what that means is something about this makes it into a table. That's his form. What makes a human being a human being? So the Ramam says in volume one, chapter one, in man, that notion is that from which human apprehension derives. What does it mean for a human being to be a human being? What makes him what he is? The ability to apprehend. The Ramam says this in Hilchasi Sayyidat Torah 2. The tzura of man is the intellect. The tzura of man, the form of man, what makes man man is his intellect. And that's a very, very important question, extremely important question. An extremely important question is what makes you what you are? And that's because, according to Aristotle, and the Rambam follows this, in order to know what your perfection is, you have to know what you are. You have to know what your form is. So when we talk about what is your purpose, what that means, according to the Rambam, what that really means is what is your fulfillment? What is your perfection? And we can't answer what your perfection is until we know what you are. Okay? So now, of course, you would ask, well, how do we know that that's what a human being is? And that's a very important question. And for that, you have to study the philosophy. Rambam says explicitly that he's not teaching philosophy in the God. He's assuming you, you know that. So we're not going to go into that now. But suffice it to say that the Rambam says, as we mentioned, that the form of man, what makes a man man, is his intellect. Now, going back to volume 2, chapter 3, where the Rambam says that man is in a certain sense two and is in a certain sense one. In a certain sense, he's male and female. In a certain sense, he is only male. 
Now, what does that mean? Male is alludes to form. Female alludes to matter. So if you talk about the human being and you say, well, what is the human being? Is he, is he uh, both male and female? Or is he only male? And again, I caution you, we are not talking about men and women. All men and all women have within themselves a male aspect and a female aspect in this language of allegory because everyone has within themselves a form and a matter. You are a body. You are a material body. But you have a certain form. You have something that makes you what you are. And that's not your body. That's your intellect. So what are you then? What are you? How do you define what you are? Do we define you only by your form? Or does your material aspect also contribute to us understanding what it means to be human? So the question then becomes a very important question. If you say, in a certain sense, man is one, not composite. What that means is that in a certain sense, you can look at man and say, the form of man, which is his intellect, is distinct from his matter. And if he wants to perfect himself, all he should do is perfect his form, his intellect. But in a certain sense, man is a hybrid between form and matter. And by the way, when we say in a certain sense, all we mean is we're just observing reality. We're saying, you know, the fact that you are embodied does say something essential about you. It's not just a an unfortunate detail that we can say, well, you happen to be embodied, but that's not what you are because your body does influence, does have a, call it a conversation with your intellect. In a certain sense, you can say, I'm just intellect and my body is just baggage. But in a certain sense, your body is also part of you. So now that we know that when we talk about, well, we learned a few things here. We learned that when we talk about Adam and Eve and eating from the tree, we're really talking about man as an intellect and man as a body. And we also know that we could talk about man in two different ways. And this is the key to understanding the problem that we started with. But first, I want to fill it in, fill in for you how to understand the story of eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil now that we know what male means and what female means. Male means intellect, female means matter. So, as you know, the story goes in Horatius that the snake came, approached a woman and told her, enticed her, seduced her to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, what's the snake? So we know that the male is the intellect. The female is the body. The snake is, say the Mepharshim there in volume 2, chapter 30, the snake is the the imaginative faculty. Which means that we have this way of thinking about things in images. In other words, instead of thinking about concepts, we have we see images. And of course, our mind can make up images, could combine images as we please. We can put things together through the imaginative faculty. We can combine two things. We can add wings to a horse. We can divide things, cut them up in our minds, in our, sorry, in our imagination. The dabbles in images, which the would say is not the mind of reason. It's a different faculty. Now, but the imaginative faculty is very powerful. Again, the faculty of human being, the part of you that is impressed by images is obviously very impressionable by those images, right? So when the Pasuk says the snake approached the woman and told her, eat from the tree, what that means is the imaginative faculty affects the body and makes the body desire things that the intellect knows to be detrimental. Again, the snake approached the woman and said, eat from the tree because it's good. What that means is the the imaginative faculty operates on the body and gives it a desire to do things that the intellect might 
never considered doing. And that's where Rabbi makes that point in Volume 2, Chapter 30, that the serpent, that the Nachash, had in no respect direct relations with Adam, and it did not speak to him. And such a conversation or relation only took place between him and Chava. It was through the intermediation of Chava that Adam was harmed and that the Nachash, the serpent, destroyed him. So the snake only spoke to the woman, did not speak to the man. And what that means is this imaginative faculty has direct intercourse with the body, has a relationship with the body. The intellect thinks in terms of true and false. The intellect does not use images, but the body uses images. So the images, the image of a succulent fruit, a luscious fruit, that's an image that speaks to the body and makes the body have desire. That image doesn't speak to the mind, doesn't speak to the intellect. The intellect deals not in images, but in truths, in reason. Now, what happened there? What is that story? God commands man. Remember, who did God command? He commanded Adam, not Eve. He commanded the intellect. The intellect, as Rama makes this point in Volume 1, Chapter 2, the intellect is what can know what he should or shouldn't do. So man commands the intellect. The intellect knows that he shouldn't do what? That he shouldn't be impressed by his imagination that he shouldn't care what the body is impressed by, that it is good, that it is fine, due to the forces of the imagination. The intellect can know that. But the body is impressed by the imagination. The snake approaches Chava. So the body is impressed by the imagination. And therefore, inevitably, the body is going to create some system of labeling things that's not based on reason because the body has no reason but is based on just what's done what's generally accepted what happens out there in the world in the bodily world and what happens out in the bodily world is people cover their nudity so therefore we just do that we just know that but we don't really know that what we sort of feel that we judge that and that's a bodily function so that's what the body is going to do. Now, going back to this problem, well, what happens there? How does it, well, the problem was, was it a punishment? Or was it the cause of the disobedience? Well, the answer is very simple now. The story goes in Voracious. The woman ate from the tree, from the fruit of the tree. And then she gave to the man too. So now we know what that means. First, the body is impressed by the imagination. And then, because the body is impressed by the imagination, the intellect also is corrupted. Man's intellect no longer functions properly. That's the story of called in the language of allegory, the woman eating from the fruit, and then subsequently the man eats from the fruit. And now you know how the Ramam can say in the same sentence, one sentence after the other, that man was punished and therefore he disobeyed. Let's read it again and I'll tell you exactly what it means. When he disobeyed and inclined towards his desires of the imagination and the pleasures of his corporeal senses, senses he was punished by being deprived of that intellectual apprehension. He therefore disobeyed the commandment that was imposed upon him on account of his intellect and, becoming endowed with the faculty of apprehending generally accepted things, he became absorbed in judging things to be bad or fine. So, he was punished and he therefore disobeyed. Well, which came first? The answer is, man is in a certain sense. Now we're putting together chapters of the guide. When the Ram talks about man, well, man is in a certain sense composite, in a certain sense one. A certain sense one, a certain sense two. So when you talk about man doing something, you can mean man, the composite form and matter, or you could mean man as being pure form. Because you could argue that really what man is, is his intellect, and we could ignore the body. But in another sense, you, certain sense, you cannot ignore the body. 
So when the Rabbim says that man ate and he was punished and therefore he disobeyed, what he means is that man as a composite ate because his, his body was attracted to the to what the imagination presented the body with. Because of that, because of that, because your body is attracted to what your imagination presents to it, your intellect too becomes corrupted. And that is the punishment. And it also is leads to the sin. He was punished by being deprived. He therefore disobeyed. Which means you're punished because your intellect becomes corrupted. And that's the, that is the disobedience that you're that your intellect should not follow the word of God and your intellect should be corrupted. So again, just to summarize that last that point of how, how he could say one sentence after the other. First thing that happens is your body is attracted to what the imagination presents it. Because of that, you get punished that even your intellect no longer functions well. And therefore, you now you, meaning your intellectual self, also disobeys God because it's it's ruined and no longer um, capable of distinguishing truth from false from falsehood in the same robust way that it did before your body was attracted to the to the to the um, attractions of the imagination. So now here we're left with this tension. On the one hand, we can think of ourselves as being pure intellect. On the other hand, our body gets in the way of that concept of ourselves and insists that we are not so simple. We are in fact embodied and that we have to work with that and think about that. Now, on the other hand, as we see from the story of eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, being embodied is a source of all of our problems. And this is another chapter in the guide, which another chapter that I would recommend as being a chapter that will give you a sense of, of the depths and the beauty of the guide. And that's volume three, chapter eight. Where the Rambam talks about how matter is the cause of all of our problems. All change happens due to our material. Forms are permanent. But matter always takes one form and changes from one form to the other. The nature and the true reality of matter are such that it never ceases to be joined to privation. Hence, no form remains constantly in it, for it perpetually puts off one form and puts on another. And what that means in brief is that we mentioned that everything is made up of matter and form, but matter, as I mentioned too, always changes forms. So you have that speck of dust, which I might then make into mix with water and make into cement, and then I might take it and make that into something else a part of a wall, etc., etc. And that's because there's, there are three elements to everything, and that is its form, its matter, and this privation, this possibility to become something else. That is the state of matter. Whatever form is found in it does but prepare it to receive another form. So it's always changing, which means to say it's always becoming corrupt or deficient. So death is due to something being material. All man's acts of disobedience and sins are consequent upon his matter and not upon his form. Whereas all his virtues are consequent upon his form. The apprehension of Hashem, the mental representation of every intelligible, control of his desire and anger, his thought on what ought to be preferred, all of them are consequent upon his form. On the other hand, his eating and drinking copulation, his passionate desire for these things, as well as anger and all bad habits found in him, are all of them consequent upon his matter. So, we have this noble form, which is actually, according to the Rambam, what the Pasuk means when it talks about man being created in the image of God and his likeness. 
And this noble form is bound to earthy, turbid, and dark matter, which calls upon man every imperfection and corruption. So what are we supposed to do? So the Ram has this beautiful chapter where he says you're supposed to subjugate matter, quell its impulses, and bring it back to the best and most harmonious state possible. And he's supposed to recognize that the impulses of matter are shameful. You should be ashamed and abashed of the fact that you're a body. And you should feel that it's humiliating. And don't be proud of it. Recognize it as a source of shame. And this is a, a chapter that teaches us that basically, although in a certain sense, as we mentioned, you are composite and you have a body. There's no getting out of that. You're supposed to wish, the way you're supposed to act, the way you're supposed to serve God, is not by embracing the fact that you're about it, not by celebrating that, but rather by seeing that as a source of shame. You're, you're supposed to wish, as it were, that you weren't even a body. And recognize that the bodily needs drag you down from being this pure, noble form pure noble intellect so that's the Ramam's idea of how you're supposed to deal with the fact of your body volume 3 chapter 8 a beautiful Musser chapter there's one in the guide telling us how to relate to the fact that we are unfortunately in the Ramam's view embodied Now with this, I want to bring you to one last contradiction. With this idea that man is a composite. And man is embodied, but unfortunately embodied. And the proper attitude to the fact that your body is supposed to be, according to Ramam, that uh, an attitude of shame. You're supposed to feel that if only I could be pure intellect, if only I could be pure soul, if only I didn't have this body weighing me down, dragging me down. So this idea will take us to yet another contradiction in the guide. And that's in the last, the ultimate chapter of the guide, volume 3, chapter 54, the climatic ending, where the Rambam explains the Pasuk in Yemir. The Pasuk in Yemir that says, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might, let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. Hashem. So, so what is the greatest glory to understand and know Hashem? For I, Hashem, exercises loving kindness, just judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, said Hashem. Okay. So here the Pasuk is telling us what perfect man, what a person should be proud of. What does it mean for a person to be perfect? And the Ramam goes through, he says, the philosophers show, taught us, the ancient and the modern philosophers, have made it clear that there are four species of perfection in man. The first is for a person to have money. The second is for a person's body to be strong and healthy. The third one is to perfect itself in moral virtues. And the fourth one is the true human perfection. And I'm explains why all these levels are not truly human perfection. We're not going to go into that. But the true human perfection is, consists in the acquisition of the rational virtues. I refer to the conception of intelligibles, which teach true opinions concerning divine things. So what does it mean for a person to be perfect? Again, what is a perfect human being? It means a person who fulfills his, actualizes his essence. And the essence of the human being is his intellect. True intellect is to know God because God is the source of all reality. 
So the true human perfection consists in the acquisition of the rational virtues. I refer to the conception of intelligibles which teach true opinions concerning the divine things. This is in true reality the ultimate end. This is what gives the individual true perfection. Through it, man is man. This ultimate perfection makes man what he is. How's that? Because, as I said, the essence of man is his intellect. So perfecting the intellect, knowing the true opinions, makes man man, and it is true perfection. This is the beginning of volume 3, chapter 54. And then the Ramah brings that Pasuk in Yirmiya that says exactly what the philosopher says. The prophets too have explained to us and interpreted to us the self-same notions. In other words, about what a person's perfection is, just as the philosophers have interpreted them. Clearly stating to us that neither the perfection of perfect essence, nor the perfection of health, nor the perfection of moral habits is a perfection of which one should be proud of that one should desire. The perfection of which one should be proud and that one should desire is knowledge of him may he be exalted, which is the true science, true wisdom. And that's how he reads that Pasuk. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom means moral virtue. Let not the, the, the strong man be glory in his might is, is virtue of the body being healthy and strong. And not that the rich man glory in his riches is, of course, the, the having wealth. But let him glory that he understands me. So, so till this point, the Ramam says, okay, just like the philosophers say, the perfection of man is um, perfecting your intellect and knowing Hashem. So too, Yirmiya says the same thing. Because Yirmiya says that what should a person be proud of? Knowing Hashem. And then the Pasuk continues, before I am Hashem that does chesed, bishbud, stuck a loving kindness, justice, and righteousness. And let's here look, listen now to what the Ramam does. He mentions as if, once I said that Pasuk, let me explain to you what it means. As we have mentioned this verse, and the wondrous notions contained in it, we will complete the exposition, the exposition of what it includes. So I mentioned this verse. So let me finish explaining to you what it means. And by the way, here the Ramam writes as if like, oh, you know, once I mentioned that Pasuk, let me just tell you what it means. And whenever the Ramam does that, that means he's telling you something really important. Whenever he writes something as if he's just, you know, oh, let me just mention that on this, by the by. That's usually a signal to the astute reader, which I hope you are. That the Ramam is writing something that's going to throw the vulgar reader, the Hamayin, the masses, of his scent and make them just think that he's, this is a side point. When really, this is a clue. This is a clue to a good reader that there's something very important about to happen and something very, very important does happen. And this is in fact the last point that Ramam makes in the whole book. And he says the following. When explaining in the verse, the noblest ends, the noblest end of man is to know Hashem, right? But he does not limit them only to the apprehension of him. May he be exalted. For if this were his purpose, he would have said, but that let, he, let him that glories glory in this that he understand and know me and stop there. He wouldn't continue and say, I am Hashem that does chesed, mishpud, stok, I am Hashem that does loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness. He would have said, uh, knowing, knowing me. Or he would have said that he understands and know me that I am one or that I have no figure or that there is none like me or something similar. Meaning, okay, what does it mean to know Hashem? To know he's one, to know that he's not incorporeal or to know that there's nothing like him. But he says, the prophet Yemiah, that one should glory in the apprehension of myself and the knowledge of my attributes. By which he means his actions. Hashem does chesed mishpuzaka, those are his actions. In this verse, he makes it clear to us that those actions that ought to be known and imitated are loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness. So what is the end? According to this, what is the end of the human being? Now I'll read the Ramam further. It is clear that the perfection of man that may truly be gloried in is the one acquired by him who has achieved apprehension of him, Hashem, and who knows his providence over his creatures as manifested in the act of bringing them into being and their governance. So the Ramam says clearly over here that the noblest ends are not the apprehension of God, but rather the noblest ends are knowing, in other words, not apprehension of God in and of himself and knowing that he is one or that he's incorporeal or that there's nothing like him but it's knowing how he interacts with the world and that is the perfection of man so the Ramam contradicts himself here too he contradicts himself in the same chapter by 
starting off and saying, well, according to the philosophers, the perfection of man, the true human perfection, is an acquisition of irrational virtues to know true opinions concerning the divine things. That the, gives the individual true perfection and through it man is man. But here he then says that the prophets say the same thing. But he adds to that that the noblest ends of man are not limited to the apprehension of God. The perfection of man that we truly be gloried in is not to know God, it's to know how God interacts with this world. And the way of life of such an individual, after he has achieved this apprehension, will always have in mind, have in view, chesed mishpudzdaka, through assimilation to his actions. So the Rabbim ends the murder book, and we're saying the ultimate, ultimate man is the man who can imitate God. So while at the, in one chapter he says that the, per, the perfection of man is the intellectual perfection, he then turns around and says, well, what do you do with intellectual perfection is know how God interacts with this world and you can emulate. So which one is it? What is the perfection of man? I think the key to this is that very same contradiction that we've been dealing with. There are two ways to look at man. If you look at man as being separate from his body, then the perfection of man is his mind. But in a certain sense, man and the body are composite. I'm sorry, the mind and the body are composite. And from that perspective then, to extend perfection to that perspective, you have to include the physical world, include the body in this perfection. So not sufficient for that perfection is knowledge of God's abstract perfection, of his unity or his incorporeality. Because that doesn't talk to, that has nothing to do with man as a body. But man as a body is also an aspect of man. And therefore, to perfect that man, you need a, a kind of apprehension of God that says something about embodied man, says something about physical man. And that's the apprehension of God that says, do, do kindness, be just, be righteous, do acts of righteousness. Why this has to do with the prophets vis-a-vis -vis the philosophers is something we were not going to go into, perhaps. The next lecture we'll talk about the idea of prophecy, which is very, very central to the guide, and we'll touch on some of the things we've discussed today.